this is Voyage Around Myaga, a light-hearted conversation about home, family, people's lives, seasonal living, and we hope inspirational ideas, and of course, Argos. In today's episode, we're joined by the founders of the brilliant and informative I Love My Arga Facebook group. We discuss one of the most influential cookbooks of recent years and talk sweet peas. Plus, we pay homage to French and Saunders and have a Marmite tip you really don't want to miss. Hello and welcome to episode four with Steve Manners. And Charlotte Toombs. How are you? I'm quite excited. We seem to be getting quite a good response. I know, it's fantastic since we launched two weeks ago. California. Yes, we've got one leg in Dorset and one leg in California and the world in between. (laughs) (laughs) Which um, is a reference, I believe, to a Uh, couple of funny women. French and Saunders. Did you used to watch French and Saunders? Loved French and Saunders. Oh my God, we just... I absolutely adore their TV series. In fact, there's those sketches a little bit like if we were in the same room, and I know you're sitting at your kitchen table and I'm sitting at mine, but if we were flicking through Hello magazine and they used to do this sketch every week and they'd be be flicking through going, you know who's got it all, don't you? (laughs) Jerry Hall. (laughs) She doesn't walk, she glides. With a sexy taxi drawl, I do, I surely do. <laughs> do you think she's a natural blonde? Well, I think she uses a washing tint, but I won't hold it against her. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, she's probably, I don't know, how old is she now? Well, she's married to Rupert Murdoch now. That's, let's move on from that let's one. Let's move on from there, <laughs> but shall we? We, we um, are absolutely delighted at the response that we've been getting and from people's reaction to our little podcast. We got very excited. We got very excited last week when a couple of people that we actually don't know friends or didn't know um, had found it and send us sent us a really nice message, which was which was lovely. Um, we hope you're continuing to enjoy the podcast. So you, it's not just our mothers saying how well you're doing, no. darling, and I'm so proud of you. <laughs> or as my mother said, I'd know that voice anywhere. <laughs> I'd hope so. Anyway, moving on and changing yes. the subject, you've got a very important announcement. Stephen and I are parents. The puppy is born. Puppies? Because she had... She had six, which apparently for Dandy Dinmont is quite a lot. I think it's not unusual for them, I gather, to have three, maybe four. So to have six. I mean, the mother must have been exhausted. <laughs> We expect to hopefully have a boy and be with us by mid-April. That's what we're planning for at the moment, so 12 weeks. Perfect time for a puppy. And you really don't mind if it's a boy or a girl, do you? No, I think in in our heads we're thinking boy because, let's be honest, neither of us have got much idea what to do with girls. Now, Charlotte, we've got a lot to get through this week. We have two fantastic guests, Gareth and Jonathan Hales-Povey, that Charlotte and I actually interviewed last weekend. Um, You'll understand why we did this in advance. They're incredibly busy people. Um, But we were thrilled that they were able to join us and speak to us about their lives and also about their relationship with their Arga. We had a lovely chat with them. And we, we fell in love with them a little bit. We think they're our new best friends now, don't we? They were both. It also helped because they were both very handsome. Well, yeah, <laughs> that certainly helped. And I have to say, Gareth does kind of rock that pharma chic kind of thing very, very well. Mm-hmm. 
Jonathan founded the highly successful I Love My Aga Facebook group back in 2009, and it now has over 12,000 members. As you will hear, however, they both have extremely interesting lives. And we started by asking them both to give us a little background about themselves. Uh, so I'm Gareth, obviously Jonathan's husband. We've been together now for about uh, probably about six years together. We've been married for two, two years now. We've kind of moved around a bit. So we, we started off in Peckerton in, in Cheshire. We lived in the grounds uh, of the Peckerton Castle, which was really an experience. It was a tiny little widow's cottage, which we kind of called a narrowboat made out of bricks because it was just really long, narrow. You could kind of touch the two sides of the of the room with your hands. Uh, but it was in the like the middle of the forest, so it was just really magical. So that's where our journey started. Uh, and then we kind of ended up in North Shropshire, in, in a lovely estate uh, village uh, just outside Whitchurch. And you're you're a you're a dairy farmer, is that right, Gareth? Yeah, well, my kind of career has flipped 180. Originally, I was in sales and management, um, and just before this, now I was uh, an operations manager at one of Shropshire's uh, biggest tourist attractions. And obviously, COVID came along and scuppered that. So I love, absolutely loved that job. I thought, they're right, this is the job for me. This is, you know, this is, I'm in my element here. I love people. I love selling. And then COVID came along, I was furloughed. I was like, oh, and then it got made redundant. So I was like, crikey, what do I do? Thanks to Jonathan, he's always had an interest in farming. I'd dabbled in a bit of farming at weekends where he would reluctantly drag me along on an early morning to come and help on the farm. And then Jonathan was like, well, why don't you go into farming now? And I was like, oh, I, I can't go into farming. That's, I'm not that kind of person, surely. I went along and literally threw myself in. I had a great opportunity from the farm where I work at now. And um, I've become a full-time farmer. And I have no regrets at all. I'm absolutely loving it. Um, it's literally a two-minute commute uh, from where I live um, as, as opposed to the 40 minutes I used to take. Um, and I'm, I'm learning all sorts. I'm driving tractors. I'm AI in cows, I'm milking cows, literally throwing myself in, um, but it's turned out for the you know for the better. I'm really lucky, really fortunate that I've had this opportunity and it's worked out for me. Should we tell the listeners what um, AI cows actually means? Because I'm not sure Steve knows, but I'm a dairy farmer's daughter, so I'm well aware of what AI <laughs> means. So as part of my training on the farm, I, you know, I said to the, the farm manager, listen, I want to learn as much as I can about farming. You know, I'm a novice. So um, uh, AI is artificially inseminating cows. <laughs> right. Um, so, yes, part of, of farming today. This is kind of the future and the science behind it all. So, yes. <laughs> and how many cows are there on the... So on the farm, approximately, there's about 1,200, which kind of fluctuates here and there. But on average, we'll be milking about 900 cows per per milking session so we're on a rotary parlor it's got a, a 70 stall rotary parlor so the cows get on like a magic roundabout it's not going so fast but uh yeah we we milk so last night for example i was milking about 900 cows we shared it with the three of us i didn't do it all wow and to excuse my ignorance but i'm not from a farming background how many times a day do you have to milk the cows uh, so for us we milk three times a day so uh, early in the morning about 5 a.m then lunchtime and then we do an evening milking as well wow okay that's <laughs> that's a lot i have a milking claim to fame my father put in the first roundabout uh parlor in the country in dorset i mean it was in farmers weekly they were on the um the major news i mean it was big big stuff 
Um, and I, actually, Stephen's father, Steve's partner, um, they were responsible for it, um, the first milking parlour. So Charlotte's son, oldest son, Tom, is a loves tractors. So we do need to know what tractors do you actually do? Oh, I'm a novice. So I'm I'm literally on the smallest tractor. So mine is just literally a Kramer. So for, for people that probably might know that, a Kramer, I just literally scraping the poop along the yards. It's kind of like... Not so big. I, I, every time I'm at the farm, I can see the the fence tractors are there, the big ones with all the computer screens and multiple joysticks. And one day, they will trust me to drive one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen and I got very excited when we actually um, moved into our house here. And uh, one of the things that that was part of the when we when we bought the house was there were two ride on lawnmowers, and we get terribly excited about going out on those i feel it's like it's the butchest thing i've ever done when absolutely you put it through a hedge or you get it stuck in against a fence and you go try and pull out the the right on lomo i think i've done that before yeah. in the past yeah. now jonathan you your line of work is very very different though isn't it yeah so i've got a bit of a variety of a history of, uh, of employment so I've always worked in the operating theatres as I'm trained as an operating department practitioner where very similar to you, nurse trainer, but based in the operating theatres. Uh, so I've done that all, all around us in London, the Brompton, specialised in cardiac, peds cardiac. Uh, but I've been overseas for quite a few years, on and off, over in countries as in um, Africa, been to Iraq, when it was the oh. ISIS conflict, uh, what's have been Nepal? Yeah, I'm uh, Paul, Nepal after the major earthquake. Um, there for the second earthquake, Bangladesh, China. So now, after the situation was getting very dangerous, especially with the Iraq and the ISIS conflict, so I've kind of took a step back from that now. I still work for some NGO, non-government organisations, and do some more administration work. But now I work at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, which is the largest critical care Birmingham. Uh, critical care unit in Europe. So we're usually, on average, usually up to 100 beds of intensive care. So I work there now as a senior member of staff in the operating theatres there. A few of the staff that we've actually got now, actually, some anaesthetists and colleagues are actually members of the Isle of Mayada group. And I just, we'll come back to that in a minute, but I just have to ask, I mean, how are things for you at the at the moment there? It's pretty unprecedented at the moment. Uh, the current from yesterday's figures, and it's also it's on the news as well, that we've got over, over 1,000 patients on the ward, and that's in the last couple of weeks. And intensive care, we've got about 150 patients who required ventilation over in the, the intensive care unit in the University of Birmingham. So the situation is unprecedented. It's really is racking up in the last couple of weeks. In the last few days, it's pretty it's starting to become unrecognisable as a hospital itself and how things are working and how we've got to think outside the box. So it's pretty... And I think there's quite a few medical people and nurses and doctors and, you know, and they're all going through the strain of this coronavirus pandemic and, you know, dealing with that. And there's members of staff who've also had COVID and been very sick with COVID. So, yes, very unprecedented times at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure on behalf of, of certainly on behalf of Charlotte and myself, and I'm sure everyone who's, who's who listens, thank you for everything that you're doing, because, I mean, it is extraordinary times at the moment. And without you and all of your colleagues i mean it would just be a you know a, an even worse situation than it than it already is so thank you on behalf of all of us for everything that you're doing yes there's not really a lot one can say after that going back to that conversation is there it makes us all sound very um flippant but we don't mean to be um can we talk about dogs 
But yeah, so we've got Henry Christian Ridge back. He's he's a pup. We had he's about nine, nine, ten months old now. Um, and then we've got Wilfred, the Border Terrier. Um, he's the eldest. He's five now, I think. And then Rupert is the wide-haired Dachshund who struts around like he's a little beefcake. He's the boss of the house, but literally he runs away when the Hoover comes out. If we can go back to I Love My Argus. So, Jonathan... How did that come about that you set up that Facebook group? I, I, I started this off in about 2009. It was at the time when I had a two oven, uh, the Millennium Edition, where I had the silver around the, um, it was uh, over the doors. And so from that onwards, so when I had the Argo, we started up and it was looking pretty good. Uh, so I joined Facebook at the time and I created a group called I Love My Argo. And then one of the first 100 people that joined was actually Christoph, and he's one of the administrators as well. And he's been fantastic. He's really has taken lead of this as well because, you know, time gets busy, life gets busy, but he really has excelled, you know, you know, with Christoph. And then we had another few members who joined as well on the administration. Uh, so we've got Kathy and Kate as well. Which are hilarious. Yeah. They're, they're, they're great. And Gareth is also part of the administration side. I've kind of slightly semi-retired to take a step back. Fantastic. I mean, it is a wonderful group. I mean, Charlotte, you, I know you love it as well. And, um, you know, we, it, it's just a very upbeat, positive, um, encouraging group of people, which is, uh, which is wonderful. So we have to ask, what sort of Arga do you have? So we've got a two of an Arga, Pearl Ash, and it's a 30 amp. So we've got one of them that we've gone and bought uh, from the Range Exchange, and it's been absolutely fantastic. So ours is on, but we've kind of modified it in a way with a timer. You know, as you get to, like a hot water timer, immersion heater timer, the electric. So for us, say if I'm going to be away, for, it can, can be quite costly to run. So what I've kind of done, on the weekend, it's on all the time. Say if we're going to have a few fair few busy days, it'll knock itself up at night. I literally get up, coffee, go to work, but it'll kick on in the afternoon and then it'll be fine for the evening. So I kind of run it that way. But majority, winter, we just literally yeah. just kind of just stick it on. So it's on for pretty much throughout the winter. And in the summer, we just probably just proper on the weekends. We also have another oven, which we call it the Swaga, which is a swan. So, oven. yeah, our backup kind of non-arga is this, like, basic electric kind of oven. And it's it's a swan. And we were, so we just came up with the name Swaga. Because how often do you actually have to use the swaga then rather than the arga? That's probably the summer, really. Occasional cooking when, when the arga's off. More, more so. Which is rare. We don't even turn it off. But, so to um, be honest, we just... But it's like when, when, say, back in the days, when friends and family come over and stay, and I guess if they've not had argas before, um, they'll kind of use the swaga. And we're like, well, why didn't you use the Arga? And they're like, well, we didn't have to switch it on. And I was like, well, it's, it's on. always on. It's not to be condescending, but there is kind of this fear sometimes about an Arga. And if you've not really understood or been brought, brought up with one, it looks like a machine that is just, what is that? It was my mum, you know, she struggled. She was like, well, where's the on-off button? And we just got to try and remind them. So she put the kettle on the hob. That's it, done. And my mother came around to the house when she was looking after the dogs and she was asking me where the microwave is. So one thing I always remind myself, especially with the argo, if it grows above the ground, cook it on top. If it grows below the ground, cook it in the oven. Of the two of you, who is the main cook or do you share it? 
between you. Jonathan is the cook. Yeah, so I, I'm the cook. I, I, I try to be the cook, but I'm very much of a World War II cook, as in like meat and veg and that kind of thing, quite basic. But there's one thing I learned, especially going overseas, um, and the, I remember going to, to this place called Mosul, and it was under siege with the Islamic State. But while I was actually there, and the food that I was having, I was working with the Iraqis, the Iraqi doctors and the Iraqis nurses, and you get to try the Iraqi food. And the Iraqi food was absolutely fantastic. So what I started doing is, while I was there, okay, heat of a what? I mean, this is completely off the rail kind of thing. The heat of a conflict. I was actually learning recipes on uh, the cook Iraqi food and cooking um, lamb. Shish kebabs, all these kind of kebabs and all this kind of food and all these Iraqi recipes and all the herbs and the flavors that they have. So I used to learn and start coming back and trying to make those recipes. When I was going to Bangladesh, I started learning some of their kind of curries and their types of curries, and I'll give it a try. And also when I used to go like into, when I was working in Nepal and I was learning how to make dal and how to make their food and how their culture, and it was good to get the kind of experience and try proper, authentic flavors. So, um, food with the spices and the herb and that's where I try and learn to do it's more authentic I try to go go for you know so. so I remember when he came back from Bangladesh and and he was making it he goes I'll make you a curry so I was like okay great and then and I come in the kitchen and I'm crying so he's never used many berries of spices yeah. in, in the and he was burning the spices when you're on, on the on I think the I was plate. crackling the spices it was, and yeah. I was like I, I won't be able to eat it. I'm crying just being in the room. It tasted amazing, but it was this, it, it was more the creating the recipe, creating the meal. It was the build-up to it that was the theatre of it all, not just throw it in a pan and serve. And that, and that was interesting, wasn't it, mm. that, that there's so much thought put behind their recipes that they, they'll take all day to cook meals because, you know, the meals are so precious to them. I, I do think it's fascinating, though, and it's interesting that you're doing that, because if you look at a lot of the cookbooks that are coming out recently and over the past couple of years, there's a very strong Middle Eastern influence coming out in a lot of cooking these days. And, you know, even in our local, local supermarket down here in deepest, darkest Dorset, uh, it's amazing, actually, the ingredients that you can now get, you know, the, the expectation from the consumer to be able to really try these different cuisines and actually cook them authentically or as authentically as possible. Our, our tastes are, are very, you know, we're obviously traveling more, but I think we're also more willing to experiment as well. And and don't be afraid of stuff. But like I say, these ingredients are more available now, so it seems more mainstream to use these things. Is there a, a particular recipe that you go fall back on and that is a, a sort of your go-to? So there is one that I make, and I actually made this. It's like any kind of cooking. You tend to make a casserole. And they ask you, can you make this again? And you're like, no, because I've got no idea what I put in this. Um, and you tend to wing it. But there's one thing that I did make by accident, and it was fantastic. So I was making uh, like a beef bourguignon. However, I didn't have any normal uh, like red wine or a Merlot in. So I actually opened up a bottle of mulled wine. And I literally just poured a load of mulled wine in with the beef and the, and the seasons and the flavorings. And that is absolutely become my ultimate favourite, favourite meal that I tend to make. And we tend to call it, it was a winter stew. Fantastic. Uh, the thing with me is my, my head is like, oh, yeah, you can make this, you can cook this. So I, I'm more creative and more experimental. And I do fail. Yeah. But overall, my effort is there. But for me, um, the, the one thing that I'm so proud of was my Nigella's uh, fish finger sandwiches. So it, it's basic, but it was my best. 
best ever. So it's like a, a, a like a sourdough kind of ciabatta toasted and then some big, thick fish fingers. They're not homemade. They're just from the supermarket. But it was the added thing. So it was some cornichons and some rocket. And it was just all these little ingredients turn this fish finger sandwich into a gourmet. There's nothing like a fish finger sandwich, I have to say. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Are you instinctive cooks? Do you tend to... Are there cookbooks that you regularly go back to? Is there one that is your your main stalwart really don't really follow the cookbooks we buy them read them absorb them but don't religiously follow them but for us it's got to be nigella lawson we just love her style her there's a humor part of it but also she's quite varied in the recipes that she makes um and then i think i just put my own twists on things. so you haven't always got the ingredients that are required so you just throw it in and for me hope for the best but most of the time it works um, but I always ask Jonathan to rate my meal. So out of 10, I'm like, what was that? Every meal we have. He does. He goes out of 10, 1 to 10, 10 is the best. What would you give? And I'm like, I'll give that a 7. Then I get this defensive, like, oh, why is there a 7? Well, what then, would you <laughs> Like, why is there a 7? I did really well with this one. It's much less than your meal. So even though he asks a 1 to 10, and I give him the honest feedback, and then he gets criticised, and then he slaughters me. <laughs> <laughs> well, my favourite baker, I think she's fantastic, is Nadia Hussein. I like her. I think she's phenomenal. She's a she's a good proper bake. However, we're more cook than we're more cooks than bakes. Are there any particularly memorable disasters that you can remember that have come out of the Aga? I'm forever doing this: cooking a roast dinner, dish it all out, and then you leave Yorkshire puddings in. You know, the last thing that needs to be done or whatever. And there's loads of times I've done that. And, you know, you, you know, a few days later, you open her up and you think, what's this? For me, it was um, when I served uh, phyllo for the first time uh, with no filling. Mm-hmm. So I was that excited that, um, <laughs> that I, like, assembled a nice pretty phyllo. Um, I forgot to put, like, the, the pesto and tomatoes in. So I served it and I'm like, oh. Have you had any filling yet? No. no. And it was, I just basically served a plate of phyllo. Guys, thank you so, so much. This has been fantastic and we really appreciate you joining us. I mean, I just wanted to say that, you know, I, I'm a novice and, um, and I've literally fallen in love with that with an aga. And I think for me, it's such an honour to have one definitely become part of the home. Um, it's there, it's dependable. Uh, I've made mistakes on it, but they're, they're kind of mistakes with elegance because it was an elegant Arga mistake. Um, but then also the I Love My Arga group, I'm so proud of that. It, it's forever evolving, but I want to just thank everyone for, for their input. Um, but because there's just so much trust and, and knowledge there, we do share a lot. And I think that's the only balance maybe share too much sometimes but it's because we're all so um so caring uh, but also thank you for inviting us to be part of this this is uh, a huge honor for us very nice um, thank you very it's much very very exciting so thank you charlotte it's your turn for cookbook of the week what have you chosen? My book of the week is Persiana, Recipes from the Middle East and Beyond by Sabrina Gale. And it was published in May 2014. It just gave my cooking a much needed 
kick up the backside. Is this one of those books that really started having an influence on Leaston? Yes. Cookery. This is one of those books that really broke through. Yes. And really grabbed people's attention, got fantastic reviews. I yes. Believe. And actually going back to Jonathan and Gareth's review, Jonathan talks a bit about Middle Eastern cookery as well, but he actually cooked it for real. I have cooked an awful lot of recipes, as you can see from the, the Zoom picture of all my post-it notes. In fact, I took it to France on holiday for our summer holiday one year, just because it's lots of outside living and lovely salads. I have cooked one of my favourite, favourite recipes is the cumin roasted carrots with honey, lemon dressing and goat's cheese. I actually used feta rather than goat's cheese. Um, and I think I've probably done this for you and oh, Stephen you have. Um, as a starter. And it just elevates the humble carrot into something else. It's just lovely. And in fact, um, very, very exciting. She came to Dorchester, or Dorchester's Literary Festival. Right. And um, my mother and myself, we had tickets and we went to watch her being interviewed. And she is lovely. Oh, Absolutely lovely. Um, and I'm a bit of a girl fan. And she signed one of my books. So, uh, Fabulous. I know. It was all very, very exciting for Dorchester. Um, so, yes. So, uh, shall we move on to the seasonal ingredients? Yes. Beetroot. I thought you didn't like beetroot. Well, I didn't used to like beetroot. I have to be honest. It was not one of my favourite. In fact, I would never, ever really have, have cooked it. And then, and I apologise, this is going to be a slightly long-winded story. So, do bear with me and try and stay uh, awake. Okay. I'm just looking at recipes, actually. <laughs> Oh, good. I'm glad, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're interested. Actually, I haven't seen it. It's her beetroot recipe. So shall we just read what this beetroot recipe is? What, you don't want to hear my story? Yeah. Spiced root vegetable cakes with taramond and date sauce. Lovely. Okay, yes, sorry. Right, so Steve. now you've made it all about you. I was very, very fortunate. Back in 2014, Stephen got a phone call from some friends of his in the States who had been up um, at some ridiculous hour of the morning trying to book her table at Noma, the number one restaurant in the world in Copenhagen. And they managed to get a table, but they only managed to get it for four. So they called to say... Would you like to come with us? So in November 2014, we went over to Copenhagen, which, by the way, is one now one of our most favourite cities. It's absolutely beautiful. But to go to Noma. I didn't know really what to expect, but I think in your head, because it's a Michelin-starred restaurant, or three stars, I think it, it, it had, you, you think it's all going to be very dry and, you know, white linen tablecloths and, and bit stuffy. Well, they have two sittings. You have to arrive at, I think it was either, say, 7.30 or 8.15 or something like that. But there was only two things. You arrive, you're taken, you were taken into the restaurant, which was this beautiful restaurant, very sort of pine and wood-lined walls and everything. Scandinavian? Very Scandinavian. Very simple in many respects. Mm. And all the chefs came out to greet you and introduce themselves. And then you went to your table. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a set menu. It's a tasting menu. Well, it was by far the most extraordinary meal I have ever had in my life. And each chef comes and serves their own, their own course. Well, one of the courses uh, was beetroot. Oh, um, we're back on track. Yes. <laughs> you can wake up again now. Okay, everyone. <laughs> beetroot. So one of the courses was beetroot. I didn't like beetroot, but it wasn't, you know, you weren't, you couldn't say, well, I don't like that, so I'm not having that course. I mean, it just all, they, they just bought each course through the, through the evening. Honestly, I tasted it, and it was probably my most favourite course of the entire evening. It was delicious, absolutely delicious. 
And at the end of the evening, uh, after you had finished and paid, obviously, um, they asked if you had any questions. So I asked about how they made the beetroot. And they said, well, do you want to come meet the chef and go into the kitchen? Which was a thrill. So we did that. And I will also just say that all the chefs, I mean, it was the sexiest restaurant I've ever been to. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> bit of a theme's coming yes, out here, trust, isn't it? Yes, trust you, Steve. <laughs> but it really, really was. And they they talked us through how they made this beetroot. And apparently they cook it on a low heat for a very long time. And I talk, I mean, hours, you know, four or five hours. And apparently that brings out all the sugar in the beetroot. And it really changes the, the, the flavour. It was stunning. And I have done it at home and I did it. I've done it a couple of times where I've started off in the roasting oven and then put it in the baking or simmering oven, actually, if you want to do it over a much longer time. So I think I did it for five hours. Um, and it is lovely, absolutely lovely. So that actually made me a convert to beetroot. Okay. And now I really, really enjoy it. Yes, one of my, I haven't actually made it, but I have made gravelettes tasted this haven't you i have tasted this and um i've actually just off the internet printed off a, a jamie oliver gravelax recipe with beetroot to make gravelax you have to let it marinate for 36 hours with weights and sugar but he also uses beetroot but when you actually come to cut up the salmon it looks like a sunrise it's so pretty because as the beetroot has soaked into yeah. the marinated salmon it's like the colors of a sunset oh that um, sounds and lovely. it is just a stunning dish and with a bit of you know frizzy lettuce on the side people actually think you know what you're doing so it is well worth doing that charlotte i think it's time for <laughs> what the hell is that tip of the week <laughs> What was that? Is that the new... <laughs> is that well, I haven't new... got a jingle and I couldn't find my triangle. So you bag a saucepan with a wooden spoon. Yeah, okay. Got your attention. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm going to talk about fish fingers. Gareth mentioned fish fingers. He did. Cooked on, and I saw this on I Love My Arga group, and a tip was things that you cook on your, or things people cook on their simmering right. plates. And with the wonderful Baker Glide, which we have discussed before, yes. um, I saw somebody cooking fish fingers. And I just thought, I mean, I know you can do them in the oven, but I just thought it was another, you know, add another dimension. So on the simmering, simmering plate, plate, on Baker Glide, you know, probably four or, four or five minutes each oh, wow. side. Yeah, delicious. Well, I am definitely going to go. Honestly, Gareth's fish finger sandwich just sounded absolutely delicious. Well, you could do it in that wrap, which we demonstrated on reels. Yes. Couldn't you? Yes, whatever reels are. What are reels? The thing on Instagram. <laughs> oh, I get confused. No, yeah. aren't reels on are reels? No, reels are the Instagram are stories on. No, stories are at the top, reels are at the bottom. That's the little videos with the music. Oh, I have to. I have to tell you, we 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 we've we've been learning a lot over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Just yeah, I've had to learn how to use Garage Band, which I never thought I would have to use. Now, behave yourself. I'm sorry, Marmite. I have on yes. my notes Marmite. Yes. So my tip of the week is not Arga related at all. But um, are you a Marmite lover? 
I love it. Yes, me too. I know a lot of people aren't, but I absolutely adore Marmite. And I found out recently, and for all the years I've been uh, I've been having Marmite, I never noticed this and I never knew this. So when you get a uh, Marmite jar, and I mean the glass ones, I actually don't know if this applies to the plastic ones, but if you get the glass jars, if you look at them with the label facing you, down the sides, on either side of the jar, there's a little flat bit. And when your Marmite jar is becoming, you know, when it starts getting really empty and you're really trying to scrape the last bits of Marmite out, if you turn the jar on its side, so it's resting on the flat bit, leave it overnight, when you open it the next day, all the residual Marmite has has then gathered at the bottom on the little flat bit. And you can get another three, four, five spoonfuls that of Marmite. amazing. It's extraordinary. I never knew that. Trust me, try My it. life is enriched it's, for knowing that handy tip. It's a revelation. I think we're on to our garden or flower tip of the week. And I gather you're actually becoming a little bit more interested in... Well, you have been encouraging and motivating me. And I've actually germinated some sweet pea seeds as you instructed me so I put them in um in wet dampened kitchen towel in a Tupperware box in the dark warm um until a tiny little root had started sprouting and then I've put those in some deep pots as instructed so that the because apparently they've got quite long roots mm -hmm. is that right mm -hmm. And then I've got a, I got a, uh, one of those sort of temporary plastic zippy greenhouses. Zippy greenhouses. Um, and I've put them, and they're now in there, all planted up in their little seed yes. trays. You've got to be quite hard. They quite like it cool. You've got to be quite tough, tough love with your sweet peas. Right. And they're so that they can grow through the winter and yeah. the spring. So really they're concentrating on putting a big root system down right and then come the spring when the weather starts warming up they have got a kickstart on the rest of life and then they'll start shooting up big green shoots so i've got them in the in their little tiny little seed trays at mm -hmm. the moment mm -hmm. so do i need to what's it called Pricking, pop, pop, pop them on pop, pop them on put them out pop, pop them on pop no them on. just leave them right. just leave them um and my sweet peas i actually sowed in the autumn october september last year um and i will think about putting them actually out in the garden in the soil end of february oh gosh um but then if it, there is frost i put like a fleecy not like a fleecy jumper there's this yeah. very thin horticultural fleece so if that I... I put over them but yours probably won't be ready until probably march maybe okay um, but you can show me, you can send me photographs and all that, okay. you know. And then you've got to start hardening them off. Um, I mean, I am really hoping that by the time we get to that stage, you'll be able to come over and actually and show you what to show do. me. Because I, I tried doing the bamboo wigwam thing last year and that all went a bit horribly mm. wrong. Um, as I say, I think I managed to get one single flower from them. It'll be different this year. So Good. So this week I want to talk about branches to force inside. Why? Don't they like coming in on their own? <laughs> <laughs> What's a branch that's forced inside? Uh, clip some branches, pussy willow, catkins, stick them in a vase in a warm place, 
and the leaves unfurl and you see the little catkins and it just gives you a hope that spring is actually coming. So when you say force inside, basically you mean grow inside. Grow inside, yes. Oh, yes. so is that the gardening technical term? Yes, yes, yes. Like you force bulbs by putting them in the dark. And you plant snowdrops in the green. Oh, you've been reading the show notes. And listening to the podcast. <laughs> yes, well done you. But actually also, I know it's the end of January, but what is actually quite exciting is that you look in the garden and you can see signs of spring coming, which yes. is hope. Yes. And I think we all need hope at I the moment. absolutely agree. And I think with that, that's a really lovely note to end this episode on. Thank you very much for listening and a very special thanks to our guests this week, Gareth and Jonathan. We hope you enjoyed hearing from them. And all our listeners, and especially our listeners from around the world. I think we're up to 15 countries, including Australia and New Zealand now as well. And Guernsey and Jersey. <laughs> Truly global. <laughs> Thank you all. We are loving doing this yes. and appreciate all your kind words. But please... Can you like our show and subscribe? Yes, you can subscribe on uh, your favourite platform provider, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and also on the anchor.fm website. Um, you can contact us at voyageroundmyarga at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at voyageroundmyarga. And you can follow us on Twitter at argavoyage. So with that... Bye. Bye. We've got to get a grip about Twitter, Steve. I know. And the website. <laughs>